Hi there. My name's Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. This episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which we are not holding public worship. The preached text or texts are not included in the audio of this episode. You may want to pause, check the notes or description of the episode, and find a link to those texts. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. We, uh, we humans tend to let God off the hook when bad stuff happens, at least when it happens in faraway lands. And then we're quick to wonder why once evil is on our doorstep. It was okay when it was there, but when it's here, it demands some explanation. And there are extreme cases of faithful people once blissfully aware and accepting that people suffer disasters and diseases on the other side of the world for this reason or that but once tragedy befalls them personally or let's say that same disease hits their neighborhood they lose their faith altogether now that's an extreme scenario Uh, there's something fragile about that sort of faith Hopefully many of you, hopefully most of us humans in general, have processed some of these questions a bit for ourselves, and wherever our faith has landed, it's ready to aid us in the days ahead. In my view, this is very important for Christians to think about ahead of time. Consider the suffering elsewhere in the world, so you have considered it before it's in your world. Now, in case you haven't, there's still time, a little bit. So let's let's do a little bit of that this morning. And to begin, let's real quickly consider just how broadly Christians might answer these kind of questions. If God is good, then why is there evil in the world? It could be framed other way, other ways. Um, why does God let bad things happen? Like most topics like this, which we've explored this church year, the answer is once again that there's a huge variety in what we might say, we being Christians, among the many and very good, faithful Christians, both individuals and traditions, uh, considering their experiences, their theological heritage, their scriptures, doing all this carefully and and prayerfully and, and coming up with different answers to those same questions. Uh, On the one extreme, we're told that God makes the evil stuff too. God made the world and it was good, and then God made the evil stuff too. It's a temptation or a test or it builds character or makes us mindful and grateful uh, of the evil free world that is to come. Uh, We find this scripture, in the scripture I should say, in light of things like apocalypse, Isaiah, not all of Isaiah is apocalyptic, but we find there this 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 line, God makes weal and woe, and that's such a tame translation. God makes shalom, peace or wholeness. God makes shalom and evil is a better translation. 
In visions of the end times, it's at least implied that God unleashes storms and famines and diseases and what have you. Because from that perspective, when things are that bad, being in exile or uh, occupied, whatever it is that prompted the prophetic writings, uh, they would rather God be in control to a degree that God causes their hardships than admit that God may not be in control. And we have that on the other extreme. We're told that God is along for the ride with us, that Evil is not necessarily a matter of God's choice at all, but rather God is one agent among many in our shared experiences. That allows for an incredibly deep, arguably the deepest, most meaningful sense of relationship between God and creation, God and individuals even, that this world isn't merely a platform for salvation to get Uh, to get to God, but rather all of creation from start to finish has been walking alongside God and we will all get there together in the end. Uh, Both of those have their merits. In the middle, you'll find the stuff that I'm more partial to, at least one particular outlook. God self-limits for the sake of relationship. God could make a world that's free of chaos and sin, sure, but such a world would be so bound to God's will uh, as to be bound so inextricably that it'd be hard to separate God and creation in any meaningful way. It'd be like we're robots or automatons, that we are all simply acting out uh, the program that was put in us. Uh, In order for us, on the other hand, to have real loving relationship with God, God has to allow for the possibility that we might not have that relationship. Another way I like to put this is God has to be surprised from time to time, in part that we have choice and in part that chaos is present in creation. We Lutherans don't use choice language much. Uh, You know, we don't choose Christ, but you might use that language. So if you do, think of it in this way. We cannot really choose Christ if not given the option to not choose Christ. And if God made a world free of sin and free of choice and free of chaos, then we couldn't choose otherwise. In more Lutheran language, God has saved us And the only way this salvific relationship can be genuine is if God allows us the power and the space to say no. Say no in one way or another. It doesn't have to be a literal, I now say no to God sort of thing. It it could be other ways. But it has to be possible that we refuse the relationship in order for the relationship to be genuine, should it continue. Now, you might call this God allowing evil for some greater good, uh, but from my perspective, uh, that's an okay way to think of it, but it only works on a cosmic scale uh, when we zoom out to all of creation and all of time. To say God allows a particular evil in your life for some greater good in your life, like you might hear some say God has stricken their family with cancer or allowed a car accident so that they will grow in character or draw closer to God. And frankly, that's a bunch of hogwash. God never does that. 
So that's three or so views on why there's evil in God's good world. And there's plenty of variations and in-betweens. And I'm going to move from there to the text with just this one last note. And that's that each of these ideas, these broad camps that I've laid out, comes about at least for some good reason. And it they each bear at least some good consequence. So if you hear echoes of one or another, uh, there's a reason for that. They're all trying to describe the same thing, to put into words what's been seen and revealed. If you can remember now, all that time ago when I began reading from John, it was quite a long reading, and this has been quite a long preface. It's Jesus' own disciples who lead with one of these loaded questions about the relationship between God and sin. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Caked in there is the assumption that blindness is brought about by sin. Caked in there is the idea that a person's own sins could bring about blindness or the sins of another. You know, perhaps turn that on its head. Then, and there's this presumption that your your children might suffer in discreet, identifiable ways because of your sin. That's what the disciples seem to think. There are many perspectives and voices in Scripture on these big questions, as I've alluded to a bit. And sometimes the multiple varied perspectives are lifted up. But this isn't one of those cases. The disciples are buffoons. And their question is nothing more than buffoonery. May you never have a preacher, teacher, chaplain, or anyone else important to you in your faith say such utter nonsense to you. If sickness or disability should befall you or a loved one, it is not because of sin. Jesus responds, of course, that neither this man nor his parents sinned. Instead, he's blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Frankly, depending on how you hear that, that's almost as troubling. It's not because of sin, and at least with sin you might claim someone deserves it, but it's for God. This sounds a lot like what I already tried to dismiss, that God allowed, maybe even created, some hardship. Uh, I hesitate to call blindness an evil, but uh, God created this thing that presumably the man may not have wanted, and it was for some greater good that would manifest in the very same person's life. That's troubling. Which isn't to say that that's never ever happened even once. In fact, if Jesus had said this a bit differently, I think uh, I'd be stuck. Maybe we'd all be stuck. We'd all have to concede that that's just what Jesus happened to say in John's gospel. But even if that were the case, if Jesus had said, well, this man was born blind because God made him blind and it's for what's about to happen here, it's not like we'd have the ability to discern that when it happens elsewhere. We don't have that kind of authority like Jesus does. Besides that, I frankly don't think that's what Jesus is saying, which in simplest, shortest terms, if I were to argue my case, it's because Jesus isn't explicit. He just, he doesn't say God made this man blind, but we don't have to keep it that simple. Of course not. Let's expand this out. There's two details we might miss from our 21st century English speaking vantage point. There's two instances of the passive there. That's easy enough to see. We have the passive in English, but it's also easy to miss. We don't 
often consider its implications. The man was born blind. He wasn't an agent in either his birth or his blindness. And God's works will be revealed. God's works isn't even an agent. It feels more like God's works. God, by extension, and the man are being acted upon. The real explanation, the real driving force, the actual agent here is somewhere else. Which brings us to the other thing we may miss because we've ejected our teleological worldview. Most of us are born with this, but then, well, at least in our culture, 21st century North America, we metaphorically beat it out of each other. A teleological view looks for purpose and meaning. It can seize current circumstances and events, not just in light of cause and effect. Cause and effect is our normal way of seeing things. We figure the past leads to the future, but instead in terms of ends, looking for, again, for purpose, that is to say the present or possibly the future define the past as though the future is pulling us in a certain direction for the sake of some purpose. Looking for cause and effect in this situation, the man born blind, we need to say how we got here. Who did this? What caused this? What? While that's implied in the disciples' question, Jesus does his usual thing and doesn't answer the disciples' question directly. He does tell them no, that it wasn't the sin, but when he goes to give the actual explanation, instead of answering directly, he brings in this perspective of the ends question they didn't quite ask, looking for meaning. He puts the past and the present in the passive because something else is about to reveal the purpose of the blindness. Something else has drawn them into this situation they find themselves. In other words, the man, the parents, God, sin, none of them had anything to do with him being born blind. It just, as far as we can tell, sort of happened. Then along comes Jesus, sees that just sort of happened circumstance, and sees it for what it is, an opportunity to help and to glorify God. Jesus encounters this hardship and gives it purpose. Jesus is the active actor, the agent here among these passive participants. Then this rather comedic drama unfolds. <laughs> Jesus spits in the mud and puts the puts that on the man's eyes. He goes to wash and gains his sight. Uh, then there's all this back and forth, people asking him what happened, having him give his testimony to others. The parents get brought in, but they don't want to say anything. And there's a bunch of other deep theological claims implied in here. And again, they're not, they're not given a spotlight. No, they're not the correct view. You hear God doesn't listen to sinners. God wouldn't listen to Jesus, therefore, because he's working on the Sabbath. Like, really? God won't answer prayer on the Sabbath? That's weird. The man who was formerly blind, now, notice his title changes a bit as we go through, also says some baffling things. He, he claims no one's heard of a miracle like this before, which is simply not true. He says if Jesus weren't from God, he could do nothing, but that seems like a bit of a stretch. But here's the thing. He's only really come to know Jesus recently, and these people are putting him on a, on a trial of sorts. He just, he just gives his opinion. And what 
it is that's led him to believe in Jesus. That's all he's got, so that's all he gives. Then we find out the Pharisees are in the same camp the disciples were. They tell the man that he was born entirely in sin, and they drive him out. We conclude with the man meeting Jesus, seeing him for the first time, and and there's a tiny bit after that, but we'll circle back to it in a moment. I've laid out this great breadth of Christian thinking on evil and a few ideas even presented by the various characters in the text. A lot of us are thinking about these same sorts of ideas and trying different answers on, processing our faith in light of uh, new circumstances. A global pandemic has has faced or will soon face virtually every human alive with what do they think the nature of disease is? Why do we suffer? Why this kind of evil? Now, to be honest, this text hardly moves the needle for me at all. The world is chaotic. God's self-limits for the sake of genuine relationship with us, humanity, and the rest of creation. This, this just fits. It's so consistent with the way things have always been. Now, occasionally God will enter in and take something chaotic, hard, maybe even evil, and give it purpose. But it's only when we really zoom out to the cosmic and the eternal that we see that we get an idea of why any evil may have existed at all, that God will redeem all the suffering, including the suffering associated with COVID-19, as God redeems all the suffering of the pandemics and uh, that have come before. We just don't get to see exactly how that works in this age. We wait for the next age. And see, that was the through line before, three different camps, so to speak, how Christians might consider evil in the world. But each of them, at least how I presented them, agreed on one thing, and that's that we agree on where we are headed. Evil is temporary. The love of God is forever. If indeed you are now faced with these difficult questions for the first time, hopefully you find some solace knowing that other Christians, other people of God, have faced similar questions for thousands of years. We've been through a lot together. We've gotten through a lot together, and we're going to, again, sometimes we don't get to answer the question until we're on the other side. Now, real quick then, on the end, I said we'd circle back to this last line in the text, and I only want to very briefly leave you with some of the uh, moral and social implications of the text. And the point this week was to explore the question and find hope in each other's explorations, but that's not all there was to the text. And the Pharisees, uh, they have something to teach us. They, they realized Jesus is talking about them. They are blind, and they're blind because in their arrogance, they just didn't get it. They let this perverse notion that the man could only be blind if it's because of sin. So they excluded him uh, because of that assumption. They let that notion in. What they failed to see was that, well, we're all blind in some ways. In our own ways, we, we all have something we cannot do as well or understand as well as our neighbor can. And it's only when we draw near to each other in our shared mutual weakness that we can rightly recognize God's love. See, they were so obsessed with looking for God's wrath 
where are people being punished for sin that they failed to see God's love? Where are the opportunities to act? We cannot fall into that trap. We must look for the places to act in love. It will be tempting over the next months and years to blame, cast stones, implicate entire countries, cultures, to include or exclude people for, you name it, all manner of reasons, disease, danger, death. They bring out our worst tribalistic instincts. We will see people grow hostile toward each other because we don't share the same language and ideas. And if we do that, if we fall into that, we are blind to turn on each other and condemn or cast others out would be evil. And if we're going to be so bold, and we will, as to ask why does God allow evil in the world, we're going to also have to ask, why do we? Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio in my sermons does not always come with proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my own seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study, and I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave, fairly often. Some credit is due to at least one of those other sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other. Be responsible and have a great rest of the week. Thanks.